Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. In this episode, we're speaking with John Ouellette. John is a lifelong entrepreneur and an executive, having built, bought, and sold both private and public companies. His focus is now on human capital and cracking the code of communication and performance. This work stems from a remarkable professional experience where it was imperative that he and his team be communicating on all levels. We speak a lot about his experience in the insurance brokerage industry, where over the span of about five years, he and his team acquired 35 businesses and successfully integrated them into one high-functioning operation. This string of acquisitions took revenue from $100 million to over $500 million and ultimately attracted a major international buyer for them. Now anyone who knows about mergers and acquisitions knows that there's an extremely high failure rate. They're more often than not value destroyers, causing more harm than good. So how was it that John was successful in this string of acquisitions? We get into this dialogue about the value of communication and leadership, and how John's focus is now on helping other business leaders embrace the tools and techniques that made this possible for him. I'm currently a student of his work, and I have to say it's been amazing to see this put to play. There's tons to learn here. And before we get started here, I'm happy to host this episode with the support of Olympia Trust Company. Olympia is an outstanding provider of transfer agent and corporate trustee services and has been supporting the Canadian capital markets for well over 20 years. I can speak from experience that the team strives to deliver their promise of making it personal. So thanks again to the team at Olympia Trust Company and I encourage you to reach out to them anytime. You can find their contact information in the show notes. Now, enjoy the show. John, welcome to the show. Thanks, Greg. Glad to be here. Well, yeah, I'm looking forward to our conversation. You've got some great experience, which we'll get into, but I think the best way to start off is if you can give us an introduction about yourself and both the entrepreneurial and executive roles you've had throughout your career, because I think that's going to frame up our discussion nicely. Sure. Yeah, I've been involved. Well, I've owned and operated over a dozen of my own companies. And I started probably when I was about 20. I think I was a shareholder in a company, my first company at about 21. And I've been involved in everything from insurance, real estate, restaurants. I'm still the largest shareholder of a 200 passenger dinner cruise ship in Ontario, Canada, which really doesn't seem to fit with anything else that I'm doing. And then I also had an engineering firm for 10 years, oil and gas engineering firm in Calgary that we built and sold. So I've had a very diverse background in a lot of different industries. And as a consequence, I kind of, there's a commonality in all of them that it really does make the difference. So we can get into that later. But anyway, that's, that's where I've been. And then I ended up in Calgary because I sold a network of brokerages I had to a public company at the time. And after a couple of years, I was asked to come out and run that company and we grew it to a half a billion dollars. So. That was the largest position I had in a company that I didn't own after I'd sold my organization. 
I was an employee and CEO. Yeah, I'm really, I mean, there's a lot to get into there, especially when we can talk around both building companies and then selling them and what that sale experience was like. I think that's always really interesting for for audience. And then your experience at Canada Brokered Link, and I want to get into that as well, talking about the mergers and acquisitions you did, or perhaps just acquisitions you did and building that company up to a half a billion in revenue. I mean, that's remarkable. Do you want to just start there? I mean, there's some major meat we can get into there. So why not give us the background and what that whole journey was, and then we'll go from there. Yeah, sure. Well, Canada BrokerLink at the time, it was it started as private, went public, raised a bunch of money in the RIPO to acquire brokerage firms. And at the time, it was a pretty hot commodity. Consolidation in the insurance brokerage industry in Canada was really going full steam. And so they bought a number of companies. And in 1996, 97, they acquired a network of brokerages that I had built up in Ontario. And then I continued to run Ontario for them and acquire other brokerages there. We probably bought about $100 million worth of revenue in Ontario. And then the board of directors asked me to come out and take a look at what was going on in Calgary because they didn't think it was working the way it should. You may have remember Don Mazinkowski, the former minister of finance. He was on our board. And at one time, when he was asking me to come out and take a look, he said, I'm not quite sure how this is supposed to work, but the bigger we get, the less money we make. I don't think that's sustainable. He was pretty dry, but he he got it. So I came out and ended up, long story short, became the CEO. And we continued to acquire companies. We went private. We were bought by Allianz AG out of Munich, Germany, and continued to acquire brokerages across the country. Really interesting process as we grew because there was all of the issues around centralization of software and hardware you know, because at the time there were two or three different brokerage management systems. We had to consolidate under one system. We bought 30 some odd companies in 65 locations. They all had different names. They had different cultures. You know, we had to figure out what is it that we centralize? What don't we centralize? All the consolidation issues that you typically deal with, you know, that's what we had to deal with. And it was a real challenge to have them get engaged in what we were up to. You know, the financial part of it made sense. We could acquire brokerages, give or take, at about one and a half times top line revenue, maybe two times top line revenue. And the public shares were trading at about eight to 10. So the accretive value, it was, there's nothing, it totally made sense from a financial perspective. But when you got into actually the operation side of it, it was a lot tougher to make it work. You know, if you consolidated the wrong activities, then it, it interfered with the client relationship. So we had to focus on trying to centralize those non-client facing activities the best way we could so that we actually gave the brokers better tools than they had when they were by themselves, which also meant consolidating markets and things like that. A couple of things that I'm picking up on there. One is that consolidating the non-customer facing side. And then leaving the brokers who have those client relationships to still somewhat not be autonomous, but kind of continue on the path in which they built their business is, you know, that must have been an interesting management discussion. And But also when it comes to acquiring, can you give us a bit of your lessons and experience of what it took to acquire these companies and even negotiating for them? When you're on a war path to acquire company after company, word must get out and did negotiations become harder or did they become easier and what was that process like and what did your team look like 
Yeah, well, the number one thing was that at the time, the average age of the owners of brokerages was in the, you know, 50s, 60s. So there was a real problem with companies trying to figure out what was their succession plan. And a lot of them hadn't really built up much infrastructure, especially in the smaller brokers, smaller, medium-sized brokers. They didn't have much depth. And so they didn't have somebody internally to sell to. That was perfect for us. Okay. So that's what mm. we were looking for was those smaller brokers. We weren't looking for really large brokers. They were already competitive. What we wanted to do was buy smaller brokerages in local communities and then give them the tools in the markets to make them more competitive than the people in their area. And that's what it was all about. And so that's what we were looking for. And it got tougher and tougher and tougher. And as a matter of fact, it kind of got to a point where it didn't work anymore to acquire because prices started getting very competitive. Insurance companies went into the market and started buying brokers. And when they consolidated business into their market, it gave them significant accretive value. And so they could pay more than a broker could pay to just buy a broker on their right. own. Right. Yeah. I see. Yeah. Like just bring it all under one roof and have mm-hmm. direct consumer. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Intact and ING and then now Intact were very, very good at that. And Intact owns that company now, Canada Broker Link. So what I'm hearing then, there would have been a bit of a sales job from your side when you would go in and to do an acquisition. I mean, part of the negotiation would have been that sales job of, hey, here's what we're bringing to you an exit for your retirement, if you will, but then also the tools to give you more success in the, in the years to come as we transition over. That's right. And, and for a lot of those people, their number one concern was their people. They wanted to make sure their people were protected. And in fact, the model that we had protected their people because we needed those people in the communities to sell the product and be, have the relationship with customers. Their fear was if they sold to, you know, a TD Milosh Monix or somebody like that, who was a more of a direct writer, then they would just buy the business, close the office and have it all managed from Toronto or wherever. Right. Right. And that was not our model. Yeah. I definitely want to get into the discussion around people around culture and that communication aspect, because that's going to bring us into the discussion of what you're doing now around leaders team. But before we go down there, I'm just curious for listeners, when it comes to insurance, You've been behind the corporate veil there. You've seen what goes on within these companies, albeit on the brokerage side. But what advice do you have for those who need insurance from a corporate side or perhaps a personal, but more on the corporate side? How do you make sure you're covered? How do you find what you need? How do you know you're not getting fleeced? Well, the one thing is you can get a couple of different proposals from different companies, you know, and find out what their experience is and, you know, talk to a couple of people that they've already done business with, you know, get some referrals. But I also think it's important to find a really good broker. And there's a distinction in the insurance industry, and that is in commercial, in you know, commercial business customers typically deal with brokers. There aren't very many insurance companies that deal direct with the commercial side. The personal side, there are a lot of insurance companies that sell direct. And so you're dealing with an 800 number or online or whatever. And then when you have a problem, you're also dealing with 800 numbers and online. The idea of having a broker in your local community is there's somebody to go to bat for you when things don't go the way that you want it to. And it doesn't always. And so I I highly advocate still having a broker. And with Intact, that's kind of what they've done. Even though it's an insurance company, they own the broker and the broker can still work on behalf of the client to get things done. So that's a big part Mm. of it. Commercially, I would definitely make sure that you deal with a reputable broker that's got a lot of experience in the commercial side of things and to get other proposals and quotes, because otherwise it's pretty tough 
to know that you're getting what you need. And when you're getting insurance from a corporate side, I mean, how how granular does a company have to become in communicating what their business is for the underwriters to write and then ultimately to not find themselves potentially in hot water if they've got a claim down the road? It really depends on the business, Corey, because if a business is somewhat homogenous, you know, a hair salon, a law office, you know, an accounting office, a garage, you know, they all do similar things. And so that's not really too much of an issue because products have been developed with the consumer in mind. So it kind of takes care of that. A lot of them actually have prepackaged programs for typical types of businesses, okay, like retail or restaurant, that sort of thing. Where you get into the anomalies is when you've got startups that are doing something completely different, like people that are in the unmanned aviation business today. That's a whole yeah. new ball game. And that's yeah. where you have to go out and actually educate underwriters. Because an underwriter that doesn't understand is just going to say no or charge a premium that'll kill you. So right. when you're starting something new, you need a broker that can work with you to educate the underwriters. That's a task all in of itself. Yeah. And, and the reason why I bring it up is because it can become a very important factor. You know, for example, we've got clients who are AI companies working in some very, I'm not going to say high risk, but high security environments. And so how do you communicate that? And then you want to go finance, whether it's a public or private financing, they do the due diligence and they go, well, you're completely you know, underinsured here. <laughs> We're not putting money into you. And so it's, do you get a chicken and egg? Like, how do you get, make sure you can get this stuff, the proper insurance and so you can get financing and so on. So thanks for giving a little bit of color there. I've been curious about that. There is one other thing on that, Corey, and that's to look at the brokers, because if you check and see which brokers have actually got experience in that area and you can find that out. That's where you want to go because those people have already done some groundwork to explain things to the underwriters and they've got some depth of knowledge in it rather right. than somebody that hasn't ever dealt with anybody that's been involved in AI before. Now you're in trouble. Right. And they've got those, those lines of communication and, Absolutely. you know, found the common ground. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. 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 So Thanks for taking me down that path. I want to come back to talking people and culture because when it comes to M&A, which is such a powerful way to grow a business, clearly from it was a hundred million to half a billion in revenue you were able to accomplish, the culture matters, the communication matters. And as I understand, a lot of the work you're doing now focuses on addressing some of that work. And, and this is a program that I'm involved with as a student of yours now. Can we talk leaders team and can we talk about how this impacts the growth of a company. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the thing is, if you look at the merger and acquisition business by itself, there is a huge percentage, the vast majority of mergers and acquisitions don't really provide any, you know, accretive value to the underlying assets. You know, one of the great examples, I think, is when Air Canada bought Canadian, and it wasn't very long after that their market cap was actually less than it was before they bought them it completely evaporated. And it's they're not the only one. It's happened many, many times. And sometimes it's market forces, but more often than not, it's because you bring two companies together that are pretty good, but then the cultures don't mesh. And you end up with you know the senior leadership falling apart and people leaving. And ultimately, it comes down to the culture of the organization. You may have a great product and a great strategy. Is the culture a match for the strategy? Because if it isn't, it's not going to happen. It's the same with brand. You might have a fantastic brand, but if the culture isn't a match for the brand, you can talk about what you do all day long. If your people aren't delivering it because the culture isn't a match, it'll fail. And that's what happens in a lot of organizations. They spend a lot of time on strategy and technology and not enough 
on the real asset, which is the people. Because at the end of the day, it's the performance of a human being that actually creates the value. And if those people are not operating at their highest and best level, then the organization is going to have trouble. We realize that inside of Canada Broker Link. There's no I was going to say, yeah, what experience? Oh. And like, where did you find that? <laughs> there yeah. has to be some yeah. war stories. Unbelievable. We hired a consultant that actually does the work that I'm involved in today back then. And they worked with us for two and a half years and literally transformed the culture of the organization. And we went from people who didn't even want to hear from us at head office. They just didn't even want to answer the phone call to actually being proud of the organization they worked for, engaged in our vision. They really owned what the organization was up to. That was all a focus of the work that we did you know, with this particular consultant around transforming the culture of the organization to be a match for what we were up to. You know, we changed the name of all of those brokerages. We changed the one management team, you know, one operating system, one vision. It was a phenomenal exercise and it really worked. We increased bottom line profits. We increased our customer retention and our employer retention all as a consequence of that work. And we only worked with the senior leadership team over that two years. And the trickle down effect had the whole organization shift. And that's the work I've done now with a couple or three of the other companies that I was involved in, plus some companies that I've coached. And now that's the work that we do all the time. Hmm. It's interesting when you start talking culture, because it can become such an unmeasurable aspect of a balance sheet, if you will, of the company's value. And trying to get people to wrap their heads around investing in people seems to be, you know, in one sense, it, it seems like it's absolutely what you need to do. On the other sense, it seems a little bizarre. We don't do that and really, I guess, put more, well, I, I think probably because we can't measure it as well as we should. Yeah. So here's the thing. You can measure to an extent, but all you can really measure are things like engagement and you know that sort of thing. You know, like, do people know what the vision is? Are they engaged in what the vision is, right? Not just knowing it. So you can measure some of those things. But what we do, we go in and work with the organization and we develop what are the results that you want to drive? What do you want to see happen here? And then we start to do the cultural work. And then we work with the teams to actually accomplish what it is they're out to accomplish. And when I say culture, culture is a function of how people communicate, how they see themselves, how they see other people. And when we work with them and give them access to that, it really creates high-performance teams. So we end up delivering results. I had one CEO that said to me, you know, we accomplished more in the first quarter since we started this work than we did in all of last year because they found themselves actually doing what they said they were going to do when they said they were going to do it. And when they came together to talk about what was working and what wasn't working, it wasn't what's right, what's wrong, who's good, who's bad, and whose fault is it? It's what's missing, you know, the presence of which would actually make a significant difference in our ability to move forward. And then people actually start to perform. They're not working from fear. So we don't measure culture in and of itself to get to some level. It's really the results of the organization as a consequence of the work that we do. Tons of questions are coming to mind, but maybe as, as a starting point would be, where do you see most CEOs and, and management teams fail in this level? Like, What are the things that, that are just the common mistakes they make that perhaps they're blind to? You know, it's interesting. Peter Drucker at one time said that if he could have his own MBA program, the first session would be on listening. And the second one would be on listening. Because he said, you know, CEOs and executives don't listen to what's really going on in the organization. Now, they might have people say something, 
and they might hear what they said, but they're not really looking at it from the perspective of how is what we're doing occurring to these other people? And what is it that is important to them to have them perform in a particular way? There's a book that some colleagues of ours wrote called The Three Laws of Performance. And the first law of performance really simply just says, a person's performance is directly correlated to the way a situation occurs to them. It's the simplest thing in the world. But the reality is that when you say something to somebody, the way it occurs to them is going to determine how they perform and what the results will be. And so we work with how does the situation occur to people? And CEOs often, they don't look like that. They say, we've got to cut costs by 10% and they go out and cut them. Well, all right, but you know, how is that actually occurring to people out there? They might say, well, they're going to be upset about it. Yeah, it's deeper than that. You know, does it occur like they really get that this organization won't survive unless they do it? Or does it occur to them that this is just a ploy to make it look better so that you can sell the company? I mean, there's a lot in there. Yeah, there's a ton in there. And I know this is a loose but interesting, perhaps, segue or analogy of there was some stat that the number of golf days played by CEOs is directly correlated to the like percentage drop in their market cap. <laughs> I don't, yeah, I don't doubt it. You know, yeah. I, I might be off a little bit in, that, in how I put that forward, but the point being how it's occurring to all their employees, including their closest senior managers, that mm-hmm. they're out on the golf links, you know, doing BD or doing deals. Like, come on, if you're not in the, in the trenches with your people, something's happening. Yeah, you know, I think what you're finding today is that there are more and more companies that are looking at developing what we refer to as a you and me business model. Historically, it's very much a you or me business model. You know, employees can be numbers. We've got to cut costs. We've got to cut staff. We improve bottom line. You know, and today there's a lot more conscious business, more empathy. And this is not, you know, just to be nice or have a great company to work at. I mean, it's about making money. It's about hitting the bottom line. But in a you and me business model, it brings the interests of the stakeholders, the shareholders, the employees, the company, the CEO and the executive and the customers all together so that you're really looking from everybody's perspective and how the whole situation is working. More and more companies are starting to look at that type of a model. And that requires a CEO that is a little bit more conscious about how they show up in the world and what's important to their people. That brings me to the next question here is, have you encountered CEOs who've really stuck out to you or companies who have exemplified that and been these turnaround stories from this kind of work and and really starting to create these, like a you and me style business versus the you or me? Well, there are a number and I'm just trying to think that, you know, some of them you won't know, (laughs) interestingly. There's a regional bank in the United States that just did a remarkable job of that kind of work. A couple of huge insurance companies in the United States that work on that premise. USF&G dealing with the military in the United States. Phenomenal, the way that they operate with people and the way they care about their employees, the way they care about their customers. They talk about customers for life. That's because that's what they end up with. So there are organizations and, and quite a few of them now that have been very successful with this type of model. You know, you go back even to Jack Welsh and GE, you know, he, he really understood about management and people. Now he had a different, you know, he had a different way of going about it than I would probably advocate today, you know, just fire the bottom 10% kind of thing. 
that was a pretty aggressive <laughs> model back in the day. I, I remember reading a bit about Jack Welsh and, and the kind of culture he built. And that reminds me of like the Jim Pattison model as well. And, a little bit more you or me. Yeah, very much. Yeah. And then Jack Welsh, as well as being, you know, the financial engineer and, and being a hero of Wall Street for a while. But then you look back and it just looked like it was all just engineered to build up. So, yeah, I think if you look at, yeah, if you want a local example, look at WestJet when they started. WestJet was a you and me business model. It, it felt as a customer hurt. felt like it changed. Oh, absolutely. It was you and me all the way. Are they that today? It's a question. Right. Yeah. I used to be a fanboy of WestJet. I thought it was so great, this David versus Goliath. And now, yeah. I mean, I'll just I'll just stick there, Canada. If yeah. I'm getting on a plane anytime soon. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. And, you, and so that that is what happens when, you know, there's a philosophy that you're trying to put in place, but it actually isn't through the culture. It really, you know, all the way. It was at certain levels and it worked to some extent. But it just, for whatever reason, they weren't able to keep it up. And now you can see how it's not at the same level of you and me as it was at one time. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. very true. Great analogy or great example because it's close to us, certainly in Canada. You know, I want to I step over to some of your other experience, owning tons of, you know, number of different businesses. And when you go to sell a company, you've obviously created value and somebody's interested in it. What were some of those experiences like? And how did you prepare? And perhaps maybe did you make mistakes, leave money on the line or, you know, look back and said, we should have done this? Well, personally, I think that leaving money on the table is always a good philosophy because if it's not win-win, you know, it's, it's not as good a deal. There are going to be problems. You know, somebody's trying to buy your company and you take them, you make sure that you get every nickel out of it. Their ability to perform and their ability to provide for the employees later is going to be reduced. You know, so yeah. you really have to think about what you're in it for. And I'll tell you the overarching thing for me in buying or selling is, you know, you have to be prepared to walk away always, whether you're buying or selling. And I bought a lot of companies where people became happy sellers because they got to the point where they'd sort of spent the money in their heads and then negotiations didn't go as well for them as it might have if they mm. walked away. It just it puts you in a different situation, right? So you want to do a deal, you want to sell when you don't really need to sell, you know, and you want to be buying when you don't have to buy that company. It's, it would be a nice to have, but you're not desperate. Yeah. So John, you don't strike me as the kind of person who is a shark. Mm -hmm. Certainly, certainly talented and, and, you know, great experience in the, in the business world, but not a shark, but were there things that you would do to, you know, to identify, like, you know, you say the person's, if you're buying their company, you know, they've already spent the money in their head. Was that part of like a formula part of, you know, in a closed boardroom discussion where you're saying, you know, we, we just got to give them a couple more weeks. They just need to, you know, they need to get themselves a new Cadillac before we put the next deal forward. Like what were some of those negotiations like? Oh, I hate to tell tales out of school, but yeah, there's an element of that, you know, because there are all these niggling little factors when you're buying a company that, you know, you get to a sort of a letter of intent, but then you're looking and going, man, we got a huge liability for severance, for example. Well, who's going to be responsible for that one? You know, I mean, I'm buying the company, but these people made the money for you. So I could argue that you should be responsible for that severance liability. Now, the people aren't leaving. So the severance liability isn't realized, but it's definitely a liability. 
well, let's talk about that. Well, here's the deal. If these people are talking about the condo they're going to buy in Florida and the boat they're going to buy and that, you know, they're a lot more amenable to, you know, okay, we'll take on the severance liability. And you just, you kind of watch for it because if that starts to happen, it's a lot easier to get that negotiation through. That's why I say you've got to be prepared to walk away. Because yeah. you to the point where you've spent the money, you're not walking away. You're going to, oh, well, it's only a few hundred thousand, you know. And was there a set of, like a framework that you you and your management team worked with? You know, kind of a checklist of if it has this, then we'll put a term sheet or, you know, what what did that look like? I'm sure you, oh, yeah. sure you had a playbook there. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. And that was a little bit more the material aspects of it. You know, who's in the organization? How long have they been there? What are the markets that they've got? What's the loss ratio that they've had? Do they have good clients or bad clients? You know, what are the write-offs? What's the geographical area that they're actually in? Is it an area that's growing? Is it shrinking? You know, you did a lot of research on, you know, what the economics were of the community to see if it's a place you wanted to go and stay. You know, if you're in a paper mill town, for example, you'll be a little bit more careful because, you know, you've got one or two industries. And if one of them goes south, now all of a sudden you're in a pretty tough spot. So there was lots of economics we looked at from that perspective. But yeah, we had a very solid checklist of who we wanted to buy and what the value of that was. And then also on the integration side, we developed a pretty sophisticated methodology for what need to happen when, especially as we got further into it, so that we could really bring the culture along, have people feel like they were part of it. You know, we had a common way of doing things that people appreciated and all that sort of stuff. Man, there there must have been a million moving parts. And especially in the early days, you know, you you probably the first five acquisitions were very different from the last 30 or 35. Yeah. And how about communicating to the board and to, to shareholders as you're going through that? Probably was the first time for you at, at that level when you're you're acquiring businesses at that pace. Do you ever look back and go, yeah, it wasn't as bad as it was. Maybe I should have been a little less stressed or how was that? No, I think it's probably good that we didn't know as much as we know now because we would have been more stressed. <laughs> you know, what you don't know, you don't know is sometimes a good thing and you just get through power through it. You just figure out a way, right? That's just what you have to do. And, you know, in the early days, you're trying to use the money for acquisitions and not so much for operations. But if you don't do enough of an investment in the operational side of it, things start to fail. And I kind of took over at the point where some of the internal systems were starting to fail and that we had to invest to get it, you know, into a state-of-the-art system where it could work. If you've got 650, 700 people across the country working on a centralized system in Calgary, if it goes down, they're not doing anything. Of course. We had a lot of work to do to bring that up to speed because when you buy the first few, I mean, when I took over, there were servers on carpets in the hallway. You know, I mean, huh. it wasn't exactly a robust back-end system. But then we, you know, we ended up with a complete server room, you know, top of the line. We just, you know, we really did it right at that point. But yeah, we had a lot of cleanup to do from a cultural perspective and a physical perspective. It sounds like, well, you know, as you, as you stressed, the, the cultural component was such a, you know, a big piece of that. What do you think you're most proud of from doing all that? Like what perhaps, you know, you surprised yourself with? Oh, for sure. It would have been the cultural transformation. Yeah. Because people were, they were really generally excited about working there and and working with us. We had a solid team. People really enjoyed the executive team. You know, it was 
when when we first took over, if I would go to a branch office, sometimes, you know, you get the impression they were just busy. They really didn't want to talk to you. And then it was like, you know, we'll have lunch. We'll do, you know, they just, they wanted to see you. They want, they look forward to that opportunity to be together. And they really liked getting together with each other. It was a remarkable experience. And it was all a consequence of the leadership work that we did over that two and a half years. That's my favorite thing about the whole thing is building a team, a real high performance team that was excited to be part of it. Yeah. Building those people in a very conservative environment. Like insurance is not something new and it's not a particularly exciting business to be in. Yeah. There's not a lot lot of sex appeal to it, is there? No, it's kind of like, you know, when Sleep Country started in mattresses, it's like, are you kidding? Yeah. They made it fun, you know? Huh. Let's come back to more of the, the culture and communication aspects of this and, and conscious corpse. I want to wrap up the discussion with that. And where would you go with it, with advice for CEOs and management teams and in starting to be more aware of this and, you know, what steps can be taken without a you know blatant pitch for signing up to leaders team? What are some of the things that you just think that they could easily do to make solid improvements? You know, some of the things are actually just having people have the experience of being heard. So when you sit with your employees and you ask them what's working, what's not working, and they give you a list of things and then you go away and nobody does anything about it, that happens more often than not. Or they do some things and they don't do others, but they don't say anything about it. They don't communicate what's actually going on. One of the things we did early on was we went out to the communities and we said, all right, what do you need? We asked them what we could do to support them in living our vision. And they would say, well, we need this. We need it. So, so we would say, okay, well, what we heard was you asked for this, this, and this. Yes. All right. Well, we can't do this, but we can do this now. And we'll have it done by May 1st. And then we reported back and said, here's where we are in the, in the process. And, you know, I had one employee that had been around a while when we were doing these roadshows and talking to people. And she was sitting there with her arms folded. And I said, so what do you think about what we're saying? And she just literally said, well, I've kind of heard it all before. I'll wait and see. I said, okay, well, when we come back in six months, will you tell me the truth? And she said, yeah, I will. (laughs) I knew she would. And we came back in six months. I said, okay, so what do you think? How are we doing? And she paused and she said, you know, I have to be honest, John, you guys actually do what you say you're going to do. That was it, right? Because then you've got the trust. You've built the trust up because you can lose that in a heartbeat. But if a CEO wants to be successful, listen to what people are saying, hear what they're saying, give them honest, transparent feedback about what can be done and what can't be done. Do what you say you can, do what you say you're going to do, and you know, and just do it. The worst thing people can do is an engagement survey, get the results and say, ah, we're at 65%. We should be higher. Oh, okay. Well, we'll do it again next year. What did you learn from it? Did you tell people what you're going to do? The worst thing you can do is a survey and then not feedback. People want to know what were the results? What did you do with them? What are you going to do with them, right? And ask the people. There was one company that I'll never forget. The executive team knew exactly what they needed to do to really engage the people. And they had a plan and everything else. And one of them got brilliant and just said, why don't we ask them? And so they did. And they had this list of top 10 things they were going to do for their employees. The employees list, number one, more bike racks. That wasn't even on the list that the executives had. I mean, it's a silly example, but that's what happens, right? The executive team has an idea of what they think needs to happen. 
and they really aren't asking and the people don't feel heard. It's just that simple. It's a funny thing that it's that simple. And, you know, I've, I've heard, and I think it was the fifth interview I had with a gentleman named Frank Leonardelli in the world of real estate and investing. And he said, you know how I was able to, to go and get all these acquisitions done was through telling the people who own these properties, I'm going to come back at this date and provide you the answers you've just asked me. You know, that kind of thing. And he did it. And mm-hmm. then he would go and say, I'll come back again at this time. And really, you know, quite a fascinating interview there and how he was able to, to acquire, I think, $100 million worth of real estate. And so with that, it just it's a funny thing that something so simple can be so hard to for a lot of people to just grasp. And, you know, I mean, sometimes I think to myself, even just in, in the work we do, is it like, is it that we're too busy or what's the underlying reason for that? Well, you know, the truth is, and that's the work that we do today with, with organizations and leadership, right? Is that people don't actually listen. Now, there's a lot of, I can say about that, but the reality is when you're in a conversation, 90% of what you're doing is figuring out what you're going to say next. Or if somebody says something, you've already decided whether you agree or disagree. And then you're going to argue with them when they finish. You're not actually listening to get them. And then recreating what they said, saying, well, okay, so what you said was this, this, and this. Is that right? And then the person will go, yeah, that's right. Okay. Well, here's what I think about that. I agree with this part, but I don't, you know, because now you're in a real conversation. That's not the way it goes. And then, you know, you, somebody walks into your office, you see them coming down the hallway and immediately you go, oh, them, I know what's going to happen here. Well, guess what? That is what's going to happen there because you've already made it up in your mind and you're closed to any other kind of experience. We train people on how to listen without what we refer to as an already always listening. What as having something already there before the person even shows up, their name shows up on your phone. And some people you can't wait to talk to them and other people you don't want to answer. Well, why is that? Because you've got an already always listening to those people. And it colors and shapes the way you interact with them. And it will color and shape the way they interact with you. Mm, It's very true. And it's, you know, I've recognized with myself that when I'm listening, I'm definitely listening for ways in which I can bob and weave to get what I want. And I say this, and in fact, as, as our producer here, Charles is on the line. I mean, I've been sharing with him the learning I've been going through, but he's part of our team and he's like, ah, now I see what you're up to. But the point being is that I know that like I'm bobbing and weaving when I'm listening to what, how I can get things. And I think now to really you know, reflect back on it was my elementary school principal who told me I was going to be a great politician. And so (laughs) I don't know if that was a compliment or not. Probably not. Anyway, the point being, yes, we absolutely do. Have you ever been and found yourself now, especially with this experience you've had in, in applying this to, you know, or you can see somebody is just sitting there formulating the argument to come right back at you. Have you ever countered them and said, can you just listen? Or how would you approach that? Is there something that you can say to try to open up an actual dialogue versus just a discussion? Yeah, well, it, there's so much that depends on the circumstances, of course, right? But asking, you know, I just want to be clear. So what do you think I said? And then they have to stop and go, well, blah, 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 blah. And then you might say, actually, no, what I said was, you know, because again, people aren't really listening. Now, the funny thing is the second time they'll listen they automatically shut that off 
because now they realize that you're looking to see if they know what you said. And it's not like you do it in a critical way. It's just, I just want to check in. Do you get what I was saying? Like, what did you hear me say? Lots of times people can't really play it back. Or when they do, it's, you know, it's that old game of tell somebody, you know, something and then they pass it on. Old game of telephone. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. John, I think it's really interesting, your career experience and, and what you've had and how you've now come to really focus on this world of communication for building remarkable companies. And it's, you know, we vied from our usual topics in and around finance and building companies in those growth moments of financing and M&A, but we still have touched on it in a way that I think is really powerful. What final thoughts would you have for the audience and where can they follow your work? Well, for one thing, you know, it's interesting. We just talked to somebody from a family company the other day that's been very successful. And he said, you know, I finally got that it's not about talent acquisition. It's about talent development and culture. Because at the end of the day, that's what makes it work. And I went, hallelujah, that's what we do. And we're here to help, right? We're not the government. We are actually here to help. And that is what it's all about. And as I look, I have never seen anything that has the impact on the performance of an organization and the work that I had done with me when I was a customer. And now it's the work that I do with my team, with companies, because without that cultural aspect, without people really truly being engaged and be able to work together as a high performance team, nothing else actually works. You're just dealing with those conversations and performance, which just produces the results. And it's human beings. We talk about ourselves that we have cracked the code to human performance. And we're not kidding about that because we have never worked with a company that hasn't had transformational results that hasn't done remarkably better than they were doing before after we finished working with them. We have all kinds of testimonials, large and small, about the way that the results that are produced. And there will be a lot more of this work going forward because as companies realize there has to be something else, there's a bit of magic that has to be in play in order to really be successful as an organization. How do you keep your good people? You know, it's not just money. It's way beyond that. It's all inside this kind of work. And so the leaders team, I own it with a partner in Florida. So we're a Canada-US organization, and we've got some people that are working with us in Europe as well. Our goal is 20,000 business leaders around the world living from this type of philosophy. And I think it's going to make a difference in the world. I really do. That's awesome. And as a final note, where can people follow your work and keep an eye on you? Yeah, leadersteam.com. That's us. Check it out. We've got some good information on there and all of our information is there to, to reach out to us and we'd be happy to chat with anybody. And then we're doing some information sessions on a pretty regular basis where people can get a little bit of experience about the work because just talking about it is really difficult to understand as you can appreciate having been through some of it yourself. You know, when you just hear about it, you kind of go, eh. it's kind of like somebody telling you how to ride a bike and then you get on the bike and you learn how to ride it. You've discovered it for yourself. And you go, wow, that's what you're talking about. I get it. This is cool. But if you read a book about it, it wouldn't do much for you. Yeah. I tell you what, it's a bit of a mind bender. It's yeah. been, yeah, yeah, but it's, I'm really happy to actually be doing it because certainly now with, with COVID and the pandemic, I feel like over the last year, a lot of people have just kind of, you know, we, we've settled into just a day to day and haven't been able to expand the mental opportunities we would have. And it feels really good. Like the brain is kind of dusting off, you know, dusting off the old muscle there to get it working again. So yeah, it's yeah, it's really good. fascinating. 
The one thing I would say to people is that this is not about a feel-good exercise. This is about producing results. Yeah, there you go. 100%. That's what this is about. I am here because I believe in producing results. Yeah. I mean, I used to be the guy writing the checks on the other side of the table. And I flat out said, if this doesn't produce results, I know where you live. You know, yeah. <laughs> like, don't mess with me. And they did. And so that's what we're up to, too. We promise we will produce results. Yeah. This is not just to feel good. I can confirm. It's not a, a kumbaya by any means. So, well, John, thanks for taking the time because a lot of valuable experience you've had and yeah, it's been an enjoyable conversation. Thanks, Bert. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.